The Brother Trucker Book Club podcast is still on its 2020 hiatus, which we briefly interrupt to bring you this special episode for Suzanne Collins' The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. This review is accompanied by my lovely wife, Shara, but before we get into her introduction, let's do the standard protocol. Ready and... Also, it should go without saying that this episode will be riddled with spoilers. So if you haven't read the original trilogy, take a break. Get through The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, and Mockingjay. If you have, but have not yet read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, please do so, because we're going to dissect it in glorious detail. While not exhaustive, it will be thorough. And this is a book that is, as I say, very much worth the price of discovery. So if you haven't read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, go do it. Spoilers lie ahead. Shara, say hello to Podland again. Hello, everyone. Surely you all remember her from the numerous episodes we recorded last year, such as the two runaway hit Valentine's Day episodes, as, w- fun. as well as the Edgar Rice Burroughs special, where we covered... Oh, yes. John Carter in all its glory. And now we want to cover another trilogy, now a series that is near and dear to our hearts, that is The Hunger Games. Shara's giving me the look and the nod and the smile, trying not to breathe through her nose because our dog just farted underneath our chairs. I wasn't going to tell them that. I tell them stuff like that all the time. That was totally Bo. Anyway, Hunger Games originally came out in 2008, and uh, my introduction to the series was uh, a little bit lackluster. I was working at the bookstore in Orem, Utah at the time, and two copies of it came in in a box of mixed books, and I looked at the cover and I was like, this looks like it should be interesting, it's not really jumping out at me, and I read the jacket flap description, and and it seemed like a concept that had been done before. It was like televised games to the death and a girl goes in in her sister's place and I was like, this sounds like that one, I couldn't remember the name of the movie at the time, but it sounded like a Schwarzenegger movie from the 80s. Did you ever hear about The Running Man, babe? I didn't. It was a Stephen King novel about a guy who needs to make money for his family in a slightly dystopian future and so he goes on this will kill you live on TV game show. And if he survives for a certain amount of time, then he wins a bajillion dollars and he can get his kid treatment. So they made it into a movie. And because it was in the 80s, it had Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. Yeah, of course. You know, which makes perfect sense. If you're trying to depict somebody who's broken, starving, you'd, you'd get a guy who has no problem at all getting his hands on enough protein. <laughs> which reminds me, what did you think of uh, the fitness level of certain cast members of the first Hunger Games movie when you realize they're supposed to be starving and then friggin' baby Thor walks on scene and you're like, wait a minute, I don't think he's starving. What was your take on that? (laughs) Well, I mean, for Gail, they had to get somebody good looking and you don't want to starve your actor to make him look all skinny. (laughs) So, Yeah, that's a complaint that pops up a lot with the movie adaptations. I I personally don't care. I, I don't care either because it's like... You know, I mean, how realistic can they make it look without, like I said, starving their actor? 
Well, and plus on the on the flip side, Gail and Katniss were well fed because yeah, of all they the were, because of all the hunting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep, and so was Peta for that matter because his family owned the bakery. Yeah, he was the bread boy. They were never going without. So, yeah, that was never a sticking point for me when the movie came out. But sticking strictly to the book series, um, I'd, I'd heard more hype for it in the in the weeks after its release. And then in October of 08, I took a trip down to see Jordan and Raylene, and they were having me do some sticker work for them. So I was just sitting there, you know, pounding through an audio book, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll get Hunger Games. And I listened to it, and it was fun, and it was fun, and it was good, and it was interesting, and then it got more interesting, and then it got more interesting, and I didn't get to finish it before I had to go back to Provo to go back to work the next day. And so I'm, I'm you know, doing work in the in the storeroom in the back of the bookstore, and, like, I grabbed a copy of the hardcover off the shelf and, like, kind of did a speed read through the last few chapters, like, in between chores that I had to do <laughs> at the job. And they were only paying me, like, eight bucks an hour. It was, you can only buy so much of my attention. <laughs> But no, I, I really got into it and really wanted to, to finish it and then was just a huge fan of it ever since. And then I was back into, I was in book blogging back in those days. And so occasionally I could write to a publisher and they'd send me a, an advanced copy of a book. And I, I got a paperback of Catching Fire two weeks before it came out. And uh, I read that all in one night. It took me about six or seven hours. <laughs> I lost a lot of sleep. <laughs> And then the very next day, I, like, priority shipped it to Matt so that he could read it. I remember you telling me about that, yeah. Yeah. His sister got mad at him because he always had people hooking him up with cool stuff. <laughs> and then uh, you want to tell them about our experience with the third book? Um, and I'm not talking about when we read it. Oh, you tell him because you were the one that brought it up. <laughs> so the third book came out in 2010. There was there was mad hype. There was serious hype. There had not been hype this deserved since everybody was so excited for the seventh Harry Potter yeah, book. Harry Potter. I'd say the th the fourth Twilight book people were hyped about, but it wasn't deserved. It was just hyped. Yeah, since you said deserved, definitely <laughs> seventh Harry Potter. Yeah, different different qualifier there. So um, they weren't even releasing advanced copies of this one oh, of Mockingjay. Like they not. they didn't want any spoilers leaking out. Um, I remember Audible released the first chapter of it on Facebook the day before it came out. And so I texted Matt and I listened to it and he listened to it. And then I think they got in trouble and they had to take it down like an hour or two later. And, and Matt was so happy. He's like, he's like, I feel like I got away with a crime. This is fantastic. You, you texted me about it. Mm -hmm. I remember. Yeah. I think you were at work, but I yeah, was, I was yes. in California again, yeah. strangely enough, working for Jordan and Raylene because mm -hmm. they were in, uh, Ireland mm -hmm. and so I was getting them caught up because they had hired that worthless girl and she was doing nothing but so I'm sitting there listening to to uh, you know Mockingjay samples and whatnot but I was thinking like should I put in another 12 hour day here at the shop their house really or should I get off early and go to the bookstore in the middle of the night for a launch party and get a copy of Mockingjay but there was something different about the summer of 2010 versus prior summers, and that was that I had begun to court the lovely Miss McConaughey here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes, you, we were dating. Why do you giggle? <laughs> the, the way you say it. The thing, things were getting pretty serious, weren't they? I guess you could say they were getting pretty serious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, she was in Utah, and I was in California, and we neither of us wanted to wait to read this book. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm going to get it on Audible. And so I'll listen to it while I work, and Shara can get the hardcover. And we we hadn't talked about the M word yet. We had not talked about marriage at all. We had been dating for how long? That was in August. We've been dating for like two months. Just, just over two months, yeah. <laughs> and we we phone called every night. We were mm-hmm. we were chit chatting, and I was saying, you know, I'm not sure if I should you know leave and go to the bookstore and get a copy or. Or what, because, you know, if you get a copy and I get a copy and then, you know, if we get married, then we're going to have two copies of Mockingjay. And like, that was my primary concern, right? Well, and you didn't even say married. You didn't say married. You you said something like, well, and if, if things work out, then we'll end up having two copies in our library. Is that how I said it? Yeah. I, you didn't say married. In, in my brain, it was it was married, but I might no, have been like... You kind of danced around tap, it a little tap bit. Tap dancing around it. And, and that's why I, I had a very long pause because I was trying to make sure in my head that what he was saying was actually like what I thought he was saying. And then I made him all nervous because... Yeah, she got real quiet and then I thought like, oh crap, like was that... Should I not have said that? Was that too much? Is it too soon? Am I that guy? And no, she was all like blushing and twisting her skirts on the other end of the phone. No, and I really was trying to make sure like, <laughs> is he really talking about marriage right now? <laughs> I, I knew you'd be on board with it. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't like jumping the gun is all. <laughs> yes. So it was cute. It was very cute. We got engaged about a month after that, yeah. officially, like hardware installed, engaged. <laughs> and so anyway, that's that's why... Uh, Mockingjay especially is near and dear to our hearts. I did have a conflicted relationship with it the first time that I read it because... I did too. I I had different expectations for it. And uh, after a, a second and a third reading, probably especially after the second one, I thought I realized, like, I get why I didn't like it the first time. And the problem was that I didn't understand what the story was about. Yeah, I think I had the same issue because I... I expected it to be more like the first and second, and it was very different. Um, so on the first read-through, I was kind of disappointed, uh, especially with the ending. But on a second read-through, um, I I got it. Like, I understood why she wrote it the way she did and why she ended it the way she did. So. Yeah, and I, I feel like... Like, I figured that out on the second go-around, and then when I read a little bit more about Suzanne Collins' life, I realized why that was a theme that that resonated with her in particular. She was a little girl when her dad got drafted to go fight in Vietnam. Oh. And she remembered how very, very different he was before and after he went. He was Mm -hmm. gone for a year, and she remembered, like, just, just how it had affected him. That makes way more sense. And that was the first war i think when when americans started to get an inkling of what ptsd was all about mm-hmm. um you know and even back then you know 50 years ago our awareness of it wasn't what it is now mm-hmm. but you know, people were, were getting really really uh, aware of that and and its effects and it and, and how it manifested they weren't just calling it you know shell shock or battle fatigue or anything it's it's been universal to the human human condition since we invented warfare mm-hmm. but you know ultimately what she was writing about was that maybe not necessarily that war is futile but that war doesn't guarantee you anything yeah that's that's ultimately that been my it's, takeaway it's not necessarily that somebody better is going to come along 
in the leadership role. Yeah. As you see in Mockingjay at the end. Yeah, with you know President Coyne, mm-hmm. she's she's just going to replace Snow with the same thing. Yeah. And you know, for for me, the realization was, you know, war itself is an atrocity, but we we justify ourselves in it because. You know, we we go to war to protect our way of life, to protect what's important to us. And yes, we commit all these atrocities in war. You know, we we destroy things, we kill people, we we wreck other civilizations. That's a natural consequence of it. But um, we we say that it's okay because it's all right. We've we've preserved what's ours. We've protected what's ours. We've we, and and all that. And what we learn in Mockingjay is that you know war is still chaos. You don't get to guarantee who lives and who dies. And the whole incident that set this thing in motion with Katniss trying to protect Prim and Prim still dies at the end of Mockingjay. That, that was the point of it was that, you know, you, you didn't get to guarantee that that wasn't in your power. And, you know, you, you can't just go and kill all these other people. And, and with that purchase a, a security for yourself or for your loved ones, crap can still happen to them. So, you know, I, it's a, uh, it's a bit of a think piece, I guess, then on on what makes us go to war to begin with, and and what we're really risking when we do that. Shar, what are your takeaways? Um, so, I mean, going back to why I needed a second read through to to understand it, um, and especially you talking about um, Suzanne Collins's own experience with her dad. Um, I was so used to reading books where. Um, the the things that the main character goes through don't necessarily have that big of an impact like they did with Katniss. Mm-hmm. I mean, she goes through two Hunger Games and by the third book, like she's she has PTSD. She is totally mm-hmm. traumatized. And um that was and you see all those repercussions and so that was weird for me. Like I didn't get it at first. I'm like why is Katniss hiding for half the book? Like, why doesn't she get out and do stuff? Because she she did do more stuff in the first and second. But then by the third, like, she's just been through so much, you know. She's, and so that yeah. that was what took the second read through for me to, like, to understand that. You know, you, you learn in the first two books that she's, she's very mature and adult for a 16-year-old. She's mm-hmm. lived through very adult experiences Mm -hmm. but when things escalate from the status quo with the districts in the first two books to all-out war in the third book then it's it's almost like the script is flipped and you realize like she's still just a teenager right like even though she's got all that experience and and she's been thrust into an an adulthood role from basically the time she was 12 Mm -hmm. she's still 17 yeah and you know, Collins had to do a lot of research on PTSD to make sure that that was reflected accurately in the ways that that people with that kind of mental trauma try to anchor themselves to reality, anchor themselves to the things in their lives that are still stable. You know, she she constantly is reminding herself, my name is Katniss, I'm 17, I'm mm-hmm. from District 12, I was in the Hunger Games, mm-hmm. I survived, I had to go back. Um you also see how how Finnick copes with it until he's kind of able to get stable again, and that, you know, how he's always playing with a rope, mm-hmm. and you know, knotting it and untying it because that's something that is familiar and second nature to him, and he doesn't get his feet under him until they go and they rescue Annie, mm-hmm. and they they rescue Peta and Annie at the same time. Yeah, 
and you know and that's that's all an appendage to the the larger scheme for uh you know coin and 13 to use katniss as a as a propaganda figurehead but um we could sit here and recount all of the details of the original yeah, trilogy all night long. It's just, just so good. It's so good and it's so full and there's so much to dive into and so much to dissect from it. But we're not really here to discuss the original trilogy. Um, now that we've spent 15 minutes on yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, beyond how it relates to this new book yeah. that that she's written and she's published, The, uh, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I smashed... I smashed that pre-order button in October as soon as it went live <laughs> um, without even knowing what it was going to be about. I think I might have known that it was many, many decades before. Um, I had a suspicion that it was going to be about the games that Mags was in, the games that she won. Oh, that's right. You told me about that. That would have been interesting. But mm-hmm. then a couple of months ago, the description popped up that it is set during the 10th Hunger Games. So 64 years before the first book. Mm-hmm. And the main character was going to be an 18-year-old Coriolanus Snow. Yeah, President Snow. The man who was the, the big bad in the first trilogy. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I, you, you had my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what was your initial response when you found out that that was going to be the, the focal figure, that he was going to be the main character? What did you think? I thought... Man, I hope she does this right because it's really hard to do a villain's backstory and make it a good book. Yeah, you've read all of the uh, the what are those called? I don't know. What are they? Called? What are they called? The the Cinder the the Lunar Chronicles. The Cinder Lunar Chronicles. And, and mm-hmm. Scarlet. Yep. Did you read Fairest? That's the um, the origin story for Queen Lavanna. I did. Mm-hmm. And it was my least favorite. Yeah, of the books. I mean, yeah, you're not going to enjoy the one where the bad girl, bad queen, evil lady is the main character. But yeah, um, a quick rundown of that one. That's the series. I re- reviewed it in one of the episodes, and I don't remember which episode it is. But um, that's the series where it's a whole bunch of fairy tales, but they're set in like a cyborg sci-fi future. So the first yeah. book is like a robot Cinderella, and the next one is a is a space pilot, Little Red Riding Hood, and the, another one is a satellite operator, Rapunzel, and the mm-hmm. final one is like the, uh, it was Snow White. Yeah, it was Snow White. And so the, the main villain is like a an amalgamation of every fairy tale's evil queen character. Yeah. And Fairest was the origins of that queen. Her name was Lavana, And she was kind of the the ugly little sister in her family mm-hmm. and she had to use her magic her her glamour to make herself look pretty mm-hmm. and there was a man that she was in love with and she was it was either potions or spells or something putting love spells on him and having adult relations with him and he he knew it was happening to him and he also knew that he couldn't fight it and he would even talk about it plainly like you know you've taken me from my wife blah 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 and we went from like, oh, we're supposed to feel bad for this lady because she's the main character to like, holy crap, she's a rapist. Like that's, that's not even like technically or effectively like that's straight up like she's forcing this guy to be with her. And I think there were some children that came from the union or whatever. I but can't you know, I just remember I did, like I didn't yeah. really enjoy it. I don't even know if I finished it actually. 
Yeah, I'm, but, I'm sure that I finished it. But, but I, I love that series, the original series. Great series. Those four books were great. And like the, that was kind of my response to that Joker movie that came out last year, which, you know, I didn't see, but I heard the details about it. And, you know, they're, they're making the Joker into this guy who, you know, he had a mental health issue and he was raised by a single mom who had her own mental health issues. And he was, you know, a downtrodden, broke member of society and, the way that they tell the story, like you're almost cheering for him as he goes on these murderous rampages, killing people that have just made his life miserable. And like you don't want to sympathize with that. You know, these characters are reflections of, of values and you're, you're making a value statement when you frame a protagonist versus an antagonist and you need to have a good guy versus a bad guy. Yeah. Because if, if the Joker is, to whatever extent morally justified in what he does, then what does that say about Batman? Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it was kind of the same thing with Lavana. So all of that boils down to like, I was, I wouldn't say concerned, but I was kind of bracing myself to encounter some element in Coriolanus Snow's youthful backstory that would, that would kind of taint the series at large. Yeah. You were, you, you know, and, and that often happens with, you know, a, a prequel or a late sequel mm-hmm. that pops up later. That's like, oh, here's this awesome thing. Let's add something to it. And then you're like, uh, <laughs> the original was better. Yeah. yeah, that did not happen in this case. <laughs> well, it's like Christopher Rocchio says about the new Star Wars movies is people complain. <laughs> people complain. It's like they don't uh, they don't honor the original canon. He goes, no, that's the problem is they are canon and the canon is just silly now. <laughs> Like, yes. Sorry for all you Star Wars fans. I'm a Star Wars fan. I just am not too fond of most of the new ones. Well, it's good that they only had those those movies in the 70s and the 80s, and then they had that Rogue One movie a couple of years ago, and then The Mandalorian, oh, yes. and then those there's, two were there's just been no other Star Wars ever. Right? <laughs> okay, now that we've talked about everything well, except the book. I, I, the only reason that I mentioned all this stuff was that I think it was important to to kind of frame what our expectations were and what our possible concerns might have been going yeah. into this book. Yeah. So that it gives you some context to to why we were so pleased with it. Even though, you know, Coriolanus Snow is not a man that you would cheer for. No. Well, um, President Snow is not. But Coriolanus Snow at the beginning of the book was somebody that I would have cheered for. And then it's kind of a downward spiral from yeah. there. But you, you see what his journey was and what got him to be who he was. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because he was necessarily wronged by anybody. Right. You know, it, it wasn't a, a bad Joker backstory where like, Oh, this guy's actually a victim. It's no, this guy has always been power hungry. And when he was presented with the choice to choose better, he chose power. Yeah. So without further ado, let's jump into part one, the mentor. So to give a little bit of, chronology on the world of of this series the original trilogy takes place 74 years after what they called the dark days Mm -hmm. Uh, we understand that there's the capital and there are the 12 districts Um, it was kind of easy to make the the mistake of thinking that this was 74 years after the fall of america as we know it but really the United States, North America, Canada, as we know it, no longer exist and haven't existed for a long time. Right. And Pan Am was the country that came up to you know, replace those governmental entities 
in North America. Yeah, so the, the dark days were not the fall of America, Canada, North America. It was, the dark days it were was, a civil war in Pan Am. Yes. And it lasted, how long would you, because he was, Snow was 18 at the start of this book, and they yeah. said the war, there, there are the 10th Hunger Games, so the war ended when he was 8. So, but it, it had been going for a couple of years. He was, it was probably going for four or five years. Yeah, it sounded like he was... Um, he was a little kid when his little, parents died. Little kid, yeah. Like four-ish. Yeah. And so, you know, there were there were founding families of Pan Am. People who, you know, after the United States fell and they, they formed Pan Am and they divvied up the assets and, you know, however many of them there were. The Snows were one of these founding families. They mm-hmm. were, they were uh, munitions manufacturers and they owned a lot of of uh, equipment and materials in District 13. But then the dark days happened, District 13 got bombed into oblivion, and with it, all of the infrastructure that made the Snows rich. Yeah. His dad died in the war. His mom died in childbirth, giving childbirth to what would have been his sister. Yep. And so he was left with his grandmother, who they refer to as... The Grand Ma'am, which <laughs> I thought was really cute. And this was, was one of the more interesting developments right out of the gate. You mm-hmm. find out that his cousin, who's kind of like a sister to him, she's three years older, is Tigress from Mockingjay. Yeah. Uh, if you guys don't remember, when, when Katniss and the Star Squad were running through the Capitol, uh, one of their, their underground allies was a, a woman who was a retired stylist from the hunger games and she gave them clothing and disguises and stuff and she had been kind of genetically modified to look like a tiger yeah to echo her name tigress yeah Yeah. but her name wasn't spelled like tigress like female tiger it was spelled like tigress like the river yeah but she still took on that entity well i was from what i remember in mockingjay you never know her last name she's just tigress Mm -hmm. right yeah and there were plenty of people that had kind of persona names or yeah. they were just given a first name and mm-hmm. something Romanesque or what have you. But the the biggest question mark for me was, and we've talked about this, mm-hmm. was figuring out her age because if Snow was 18 at the 10th Hunger Games, he's 82 in the first book. Mm-hmm. He's 84 in the third book and Tigress is three years older. So she's 87, an 87-year-old genetically modified woman who only eats raw meat. Well, and fr- and if you remember, because Graham wasn't sure by the end of the book, he you still weren't sure, right, whether that was I, her or not. I was m- closer to being sure that it was her. I, okay. Some of my doubts had been alleviated, and also, you know, she throughout these four books now, she's never repeated a character's name. Like she's never had right. two characters with the same name. So, right. you know, it would it would of course make sense that that Tigress from the Snow family was. Mm-hmm. Tigress, who later on went went on to be a stylist and then went on to be a rebel empathizer. Right. Um, So the the things that gave it away for me was the fact that Tigress um, in... uh, Why do I always forget the name of this book? Or the Songbirds and Snakes. Songbirds and Snakes, thank you. Um, In in that book, the things that gave it away were the fact that she loved fashion um, and she wanted to work um, in the fashion industry and um, he even mentions that uh, she had made um, hamburger patties one day and she made her smaller than Coriolanus's and the grandmam and he said he didn't feel bad about it uh, because he knew that she snitched raw meat 
as she was making the okay. patties. Remember? Okay. So that, and um, so these are the little clues that Collins yeah. put in there, and, and not just with Tigress's character, but there are a couple of things that people who have read the original trilogy over and over again yes. will, will pick up on, especially in the third part, as we'll dive into. Mm-hmm. So you're like, holy crap, this is this, that is that. Yeah. The the Easter eggs, the member berries, <laughs> yes. as it were. So so yeah. Then then we're pretty conclusive on the fact that Tigress, Tigress Snow, yeah, is is uh, Tigress from from Mockingjay. Yeah. So yeah, and they're um, oh how the mighty have fallen. Oh, and you did say they're cousins. They're yeah. they're not brother sister. They're, they're cousins. They're very very close. But yeah, they're cousins. Both taken in by their grandmother, the grandmam. Yeah, and this is. Uh, the, the book starts with Coriolanus boiling cabbage yes. for food. And uh, you, you get an idea of how hard things are for the snows. But uh, this is going to be the first of many kind of dominoes in the story that, that show how his early years paralleled Katniss's later on. Yeah, it was very interesting. Because Katniss was, was not only starving in her in her young ages, in her young years before she decided to go be a hunter, like her father had taught her, mm-hmm. and to take the tessery and all that. But uh, she was adamant that she couldn't let anybody know they were starving. Yeah. She couldn't because it would mean putting Prim in an orphanage and, mm-hmm. and it was it would just be even worse. Mm-hmm. Snow is the same way. He you know, he jealously guards his family secrets and the fact that they are flat broke and have nothing and they are on the brink of losing everything yeah. especially now that there are going to be you know new property taxes implemented in the capital and they've got no money to pay or, these i mean that's quite a bit later in the book that's like halfway through the book that they find that out it's it's close yeah i mean but it's, it's part of the impetus i think it still happens in the first third of the book but it's maybe it's as he's mentoring um, but the po- he even sorry he even goes so far as to talk about I, I think in this very first part with the cabbage, because um, he, he's in the academy, um, mm-hmm. basically high school, from what I understand. Uh, more of a of a special prep school for connected families. But, yeah, but, but yeah, like high school age. Yeah, he's getting ready to graduate. Um, yeah. He, he's, he's trying to, to secure some uh, some resources to get him into university. University, yeah. yeah. But um, with the cabbage, he even goes so far to say that like he... He doesn't like the cabbage, but he's going to eat all of his portion because he doesn't want his stomach grumbling during school. Like, this is how, like, thought out his process is for making sure that nobody knows that the snows are in financial trouble. He's he's cunning. He's tactical. He's very, very intelligent. And he, you know, he even kind of counts his blessings at one point. The fact that he was he was eating a very low calorie diet from a very young age. And while he is thin. He's glad that he's not, you know, deformed and that it hasn't affected his brain development because mm-hmm. that's all he's got. Mm-hmm. And so he's had to, to hide the reality of his family situation and use all of his intelligence to, you know, to, to secure a better future for himself and his family. So he's in this training program to be a, a mentor in the Hunger Games. Well, and that's that's a very new thing. Like the 10th Hunger Games is the first time that they're going to have mentors. Mm-hmm. And the mentors are not victors like they were or like they will be in the 64th Hunger Games. Yeah, we're seeing a very... 64th? 74th. 64 years later. That's right, 74th. So we're seeing a very dialed-down version of the Hunger Games, Mm -hmm. Um, and we realize that after 74, 75 years of Hunger Games, the ones Katniss goes through have had 
uh, a lot of tampering, a lot of times to, a lot, a lot of, of chance to perfect as it were. Yeah. To make it more intense, to make it more frightening. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've, they figured out really how to use the hunger games to keep the, the districts down. Yep. So this one doesn't, doesn't uh, take place in you know different arenas or like all 10 so far have taken place in the same abandoned sports arena in the capital mm-hmm. for kicks and giggles. Let's say that it's in Denver some some you know big old metropolis in the Rocky Mountains and so that would mean that the Hunger Games take place in Mile High Stadium where the Broncos play. <laughs> and you know it's it's not like they have a ton of room to hide it, it's not something that's supposed to last for weeks and weeks. Uh it's it's basically a, a football field with no grass on it and yeah they they giving... talk about the the stands like with the seating and um, yeah. and they basically just dump them all in there on the stadium floor with a bunch of weapons and and they don't have long the, the previous nine hunger games because this is the 10th one um that i mean it's just a bloodbath and then it's over mm-hmm. it, from what it sounds like it's, it's pretty quick do you remember how long katniss was in the hunger games in the 74th uh i don't remember specifically but it it seemed like a few days i want to say it was at least 10 days i want to say i was gonna say i don't think it was longer than a week she was in there she she dealt with the dehydration in the first couple of days right then could have been longer than then she was treed for a night and then uh the wasps she was out Mm -hmm. for a couple of days with that with rue patching her up right um she she camped with rue for a couple of days um she goes and rescues Peta. they're hanging out in the cave while he heals up Okay, it was a little I want to say it was yeah. it was like 7 to 10 days yep. that they were in there and it was it was almost like it was a national park that was fenced off or something. Yeah. So so yeah, like over time they've they've figured out like there's there's merit to drawing this out. Mm-hmm. Um no, not only does it amplify the spectacle, but you know again, like the more that they can use the games to scare the districts and to remind them that this is this, the war never really ends mm-hmm. and we're always going to win. Like, yeah. and, and that's the realization that, that snow comes to along the way. Um, yeah, and the, I think the coolest part about part one and especially part two is seeing how, um, the, they develop these 10th hunger games, the things that they add to it. And, and then you can see how they must've evolved those things to get to the hunger games that Katniss participates in yeah because this is the first year that they implemented the sponsorship program yep because and that was snow's idea yeah because you know what if what if people had a chance to support their own tributes or what if people had had a chance to kind of pick a winner and bet against each other what if it was more than just the 24 kids in the arena who were involved in this yeah because they were trying to think of a way because nobody was watching the hunger games nobody really cared about it like it was an uncomfortable thing that people didn't want to talk about and they didn't want to watch. And if that's the case, then it can backfire on the Capitol. Exactly. And so um, Dr. Gall, who was the head game maker and super evil, holy oh, cow. Oh, man, this chick is crazy. Um, she she can see the potential in Snow for evil. <laughs> and um, so she's trying to cult- cultivate that in him throughout the book. And... Um, she keeps coming back to him and like trying to get him to to think about how to evolve the games, basically. Mm-hmm. Like how how do we get people to watch them? And 
Um, and so Snow has all these ideas of how they can get people involved in it and make it, um, well, in the capital at least, something that people want to watch. Yeah, it's not just improving the games from a technical standpoint, right. but from the philosophical reason behind using them. Mm-hmm. And this is something I'm, I'm going to kind of to address this now because it it comes into play later for plot purposes, but we find out that you know in this in this 10 year span the hunger games are still pretty much in their infancy and and yeah there there is some doubt as to their efficacy and their their purpose and we find out that snow has got a pretty close connection to them because his dad was the one who originally had the idea for them yes and you you find that out at the very end of the yeah. book Be, because of you know who he was having a feud with and yeah and and all that but um effectively like they weren't they weren't supposed to ever really happen it was an mm-hmm. idea that somebody had had well it wasn't his dad that had the idea that, that's true it was his dad who took the idea yes it was uh higgin dean high bottom high bottom mm-hmm. that's what it was high as a kite bottom was the nickname <laughs> not higgin high bottom dean high bottom had the idea one night in a in a drunken not really rage but in drunken ramble and cassis snow was like Hey, you might be onto something. And Highbottom's like, "Well, no, don't do that." But the next thing you know is like, "Oh my gosh, the Capitol's actually going to take this idea mm-hmm. and run with it." And so, in, in a sense, like the Hunger Games could have fizzled out; they yeah. would have never happened with the snow without the Snow family, and without Coriolanus, they probably would have died out. Yeah. So, because he's the one that got people involved in them and got people to want. To watch them. Yeah. Not people in the districts. The people in the districts still didn't want to watch. But he got people in the capital to want to watch the games. And the the laws in the districts were downstream of the capital. Yeah. And so, you know, so goes the capital. The districts will follow. Mm-hmm. They'll have to because yeah. the capital had all the power. Yeah. So uh, he, he gets a mentorship. He gets assigned. Yeah. And he's expecting because he relies a lot on the Snow name mm-hmm. because they're one of the founding families and... As far as everybody else knows, they're still wealthy, and so he's expecting that he's going to get um, one of the better districts. And already, districts one and two are already the better districts. Like you want a tribute from there. Even before we get things like career tributes and yeah. you know, Hunger Games training academies, like exactly. they have in Katniss's day. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, he keeps expecting his name to get called with, okay, maybe somebody from the fishing district, maybe somebody yeah. from the lumber district, maybe even somebody from the agricultural district. Nope, not four, not seven, not 11. He gets the girl from 12. Yeah. Like this is a big middle finger to snow. Like, yeah, you, you, you think you're the cock of the walk, you're hot to trot. Let's see you make something from nothing. And um, this is where you start to find out that Dean Highbottom has it out for Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. But for, and Coriolanus does not know why. Yeah, and that goes back to the whole, like, it gets revealed later. It's yeah. like, why does this guy really hate him? Like, mm-hmm. was, was Dean Highbottom in love with Snow's mom? But then, you know, <laughs> Snow's dad came along. Like, we were going to yeah. get a little Snape and James Potter <laughs> thing going. Yeah. No, it, she didn't go that route at all. Um, another fascinating point. We know that the reaping takes place in the summer. Yep. We've known that from the beginning, that it's, it's hot outside. The yeah. kids are worried about fainting and stuff. That's We, we learned that from Katniss. Um, we find out in this book, 
did they ever mention the months by name in the original trilogy? I feel like mm-hmm. that was one of the things that was kind of gone. So. Like they yeah. had they had colder months. Maybe it was maybe they did mention months, but not really days. But in this book, we find out that the reaping is on July fourth. Yes. So it's still kind of close enough to the fall of the United States that that's a significant date, and they decide mm-hmm. to turn it from Independence Day into Reaping into, Day. Yep. And uh, and so it's, it's yeah, that the, was a cool little tidbit. Yeah, it's it's the summertime that this is happening. The reaping happens in the beginning of July, and uh, Coriolanus Snow gets assigned to what's her name, Char? Lucy Gray Baird. Tell Baird? us Baird. Baird. Tell us about the the first time that we see Lucy Gray in the book. So I mean, Suzanne Collins does it again because I, with um, Katniss and Prim. I mean, it's a dramatic reaping, which doesn't happen very often. And with Lucy Gray, um, as she's referred to throughout the book, uh, you see another dramatic reaping. And um, she gets called and the camera goes to her. And you see, like, she's all dolled up in this beautiful, I think they said it was a rainbow colored dress with ruffles all over it. Yeah. And way too much makeup on, like, immodest amount of makeup. Yeah. And as she's passing this other girl, you see her um, slip something into the girl's dress. And as she, as Lucy walks away, this girl falls to the ground and she's writhing all over. And then a snake um, comes out of the dress. So um, as Lucy Gray is, is going up to the stage, she slips a snake into her enemy's dress. Well, and then you find out that the, the girl that she attacked was the mayor's, mayor's daughter, daughter and that the mayor rigged the reaping specifically to put Lucy Gray mm-hmm. in there. Like, the district hated this girl and wanted her dead. And so they're like, well, just put her in the reaping. And uh-huh. and she knew it was coming. Yeah. And she's like, all right, well, I play around with snakes. And so I'll drop one down Mayfair's dress was yeah. the girl's name. And like the mayor ends up punching Lucy Gray in the mouth on national television yeah. after she assaults his daughter. Yep. And it's- then she she sings that beautiful song and entrances everyone. And, yeah. Um, just, yeah. So, sh- so another another reaping that. That is pretty dramatic and out of the norm. Maybe I've read too many disappointing books in the last year or so, especially, you know, sequels that I was excited for. But mm-hmm. when I when I read the description and found out that Snow was training the girl from 12, I thought, oh, OK, you know, that's that's going to be kind of poetic, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. he'll, maybe he'll just end up having a really sour relationship with 12 after that. But in in my head, I expected that it was just going to be some bland girl from coal miner country and it was going to be a story about snow's cunning and trying to make something out of this nothing girl and then mm-hmm. we get this introduction of lucy gray that is just you know a five alarm fire on an oil rig and i'm mm-hmm. like shame on me for expecting anything less because this was incredible just just a, a bombshell entrance by a character who would who would steal the the scene every time she she popped up after that and it was it was then when he saw her during the reaping and he saw that going on he's like I might be able to work with this. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they bring the, the tributes in on the train and the train is not what it was in Katniss's no, day. I mean, they bring him in on a cattle car, basically. And it's a short train. It's 24 kids crammed into one car. They got to mm. like beat them with sticks to get them off the train and they haul them off to a... They're all handcuffed and shackled. And, starving and soiled. And, yeah. and uh, they drag them off to the fancy multi-level uh, tribute center, right? To train them and stuff them full of good food. <laughs> You mean the monkey cage? Yeah, they stick him in a cage in a zoo. Yeah. And uh, 
And they don't feed them. And they, and they don't feed them. They so are, they are not fed the by the capital anyway the entire time they're there. So Snow, who's already short on food supplies, has to figure out how to get food to his tribute to keep her alive, mm -hmm. give her a fighting chance. Because if his tribute dies, then that's going to hinder his ability to win. What's what's the prize that he's after? Uh, it's a full ride to university. Yeah. So for he, whatever mentor for, yeah, whoever yeah. wins the Hunger Games, the mentor gets the full ride to he's, university. He's got to win a dogfight with a hamster, and he's not going to let this hamster die. He's he's, yeah. he's going to do everything he can. Um, let's take a moment to, moment to step sideways and talk about the Plinth family. Yeah, so Janus and, is um, the same age as Coriolanus. They're in school together. And uh, so Janus has all of the money that Coriolanus pretends to have. Yes. And then some. Except the Plinths are from District 2, so they're, they're district, but they got enough money to move to the capital. And uh, it reminds me very much of, like... Regency England, the aristocracy. And, yeah. um, you can see Sejanus wearing crushed velvet and having a <laughs> handkerchief. And... Well, just the fact that, like, as that aristocracy started to lose their wealth, um, you know, rich rich Americans would come in or um, wealthy merchants mm -hmm. would be able to kind of, they would be able to buy a title, basically. And it's the same kind of thing going on here at the Capitol. Well, and Coriolanus has a lot of reasons to feel antagonistic towards Sejanus because he's kind of stolen Coriolanus's life and without meaning to. Yeah, and, and he, and he just doesn't because even, he's wealthy. Yeah, and he doesn't even want it. And, you know, the, the Snow's wealth was destroyed when District 13 went under mm -hmm. and all those munitions contracts went to the Plinths who had their own plants elsewhere. And so suddenly they are the lead weapons provider for the entire capital mm -hmm. and the peacekeeping force. And so Sejanus has has wealth that he doesn't want that should be Coriolanus's, and he does want it, and he does need it, and he doesn't have it. Yeah. And so you know Coriolanus is is cunning and smooth and charming, and yeah. he's and he's cordial to Sejanus, but you can tell like he really resents this guy. Yeah. Well, and Sejanus latches on to that. Um, I don't know. That smells really like nice to him, but he's not mean to him like a lot of the other Capital kids. Are. So anyway, pardon the brief interruption there. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, that's the dynamic between Coriolanus and Sejanus. Mm -hmm. And they are going to be you know, probably two of the three focal characters throughout the entire story. Yeah. He'll, he'll disappear a little bit in the second part, but he's got a bigger role to play in the third part. Yeah. And uh, the, the Plinths are actually the ones funding this full ride to the university and all the, the Plinth Prize. Mm -hmm. Whoever is the mentor that trains the victor in this year's Hunger Games will probably be the winner of that prize. And so, you know, Coriolanus wants to make the smartest case that he can for him being deserving of that prize. So, it, once again, he's got to kind of kiss up to the plinths and and make not just pleasant but really nice with with this family that he's got a lot of resentment for. Mm -hmm. So it, it shows early on that... He was apt to play the political game. He was also kind of forced to. So he I mean, was. He's he's charming, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know that conniving is quite the right word at the beginning of the book, but it definitely is towards the it's, end. I'd say cunning is cunning. You know, the, the conniving yeah, the definitely beginning. has its has its place along the way, but it's it's just that he's he 
has this, uh, this sense of entitlement to his birthright, which was wealth and power. And just because most of his life at this point has been defined by hardship and by a lack of those things, he, he still has that appetite for it. Well, and, um, and we talked about this before. He wants control. Mm-hmm. And he figures out that the only way to get that control is through gaining power. Mm-hmm. And you see just, just the kind of things that he will do to achieve that power. He'll, mm-hmm. he'll do it through his charm. He'll play the game, but when the game doesn't go his way, he will cheat. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll see that a bit in the second part, and, and the book kind of ends with him you know, learning one of his signature moves that we find out about later in the, in the main trilogy. Yeah. But he'll, he'll play on the level, and when it doesn't go his way, then, then the practical snow comes out yeah so okay so we've talked about Sejanus we've Mm -hmm. talked about Lucy Gray we've Mm -hmm. got the tributes there in uh, in the zoo yeah and Sejanus is also one of the mentors he has a tribute from district two which is his home district and we find out later that it's it's a kid who was a friend of his back before a classmate older than him but a a classmate but yeah a guy that he knew Mm -hmm. and uh you know, Sejanus has been in the capital for a couple of years now, but he still kind of feels district. Not just a couple. He's, he's He moved to the capital when he was, like, after the war, when he was, like, eight or so. Okay, so, yeah, you know, once once his family got rich off of the munitions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, you know, for, for half of Snow's life yeah. up to this point. Um, another thing that kind of goes back to the whole, like, Snow's fingerprints on later iterations of the game is... Uh, Lucy Gray is what? What was the word that they used to describe her people? They were Covey. Yeah, Covey. Um, they were some kind of traveling minstrels, circus yeah. performers. Yeah. And so she has, she has a, a lot of visual and performative flair. Yeah. She's she's a dancer, sort of. She's a singer. She's a musician, especially. She's a musician and a singer. And yeah. music plays a huge role in this book. I mean. Mm-hmm. Suzanne Collins wrote half a dozen songs and poems and and uh, yeah. and stuff for for the story, including uh, two that pop up later in the series. We find out that well, no, yeah, Suzanne Collins writes a couple of them here, but we'll find out that Lucy Gray invents the hanging tree. She's the one that wrote it. She wrote yeah. the hanging tree, and uh, the other song, the one that Katniss sang to sing Rue to death, the the lullaby. Yeah, was well, was she, in this. She originally sings it to Prim. But then in the arena, when Rue dies, she sings it to Rue. She sings it, here is the place where I love you. Yeah. You know, so so two of those songs were featured in the original trilogy, but she writes plenty of numbers mm-hmm. for this, which is a, a completely different skill set in and of itself. When I found out that the audiobook for this one was narrated by Santino Fontana, I was like, oh my gosh, is he going to sing these songs? Like, <laughs> he, he recites them, and he recites them well enough. Yeah. He's a... Uh, is, what is, he, is he an opera singer or is he just a tenor? Like I know he did something with the Tab Choir a couple of years ago, and you can oh, find. Oh, I like, didn't even know his name. He did. Um, it was one of the Christmas concerts with the oh, Tab okay. Choir, the uh-huh. one with all the Muppets. Oh, okay. They remember the All Elmo Wants for Christmas? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was Santino Fontana was the oh, human okay. in that one. So okay. he's he's definitely got a, a good solid voice on him, and I didn't know that he narrated, but he he did this one to perfection. Um. But what is what this all boils down to is, uh, again, Snow starts to see the potential of, of dressing up the showmanship, of mm-hmm. the tributes, 
Um, yeah, and she, Lucy Gray is the one that shows him that. Yeah, she garners a lot of attention. You yep. can't help but notice her when she's on screen, when she's yep. on the stage. And uh, they don't have the really big, you know, primetime television special yeah. with uh, Lucky Flickerman is the, the <laughs> one in this one. Probably Caesar Flickerman's either dad or granddad yep. in this one. Um, but they do get a little bit of stage time and he uses that. They prepare her, they dress her up, they doll her up and everything. And, and she, you know, even though she's the girl from this lowly snow finds her a guitar. Yeah. He, so she he, can sing a song. Exactly. Like all of this stuff, like it, it, you, you see where the seeds were planted mm-hmm. for, for the, the, uh, the games to get better or, or rather, if you will, where the snowball was packed to roll downhill and get bigger <laughs> To use a much more apt metaphor than a than a than a seedling, right? Yeah. Um, so all of this stuff leads up to we're we're getting closer to the beginning of the games, mm-hmm. and one day they take a tour of the arena, which was a, a like we said it was a sporting arena, but oh, you're skipping an important part though. What what is the important part that I'm skipping? Um. Uh, when snow goes. Well, originally he he first goes to the monkey cage um, to take Lucy some food, mm-hmm. and um, and then Sejanus comes and starts feeding the tributes as well, and then all the other mentors are like, "Oh, hey, are we supposed to be doing this?" Mm-hmm. And so some of the other mentors come and start feeding their tributes, mm-hmm. and um, Arachne Crane, oh yeah, all uh, is one that you you know. You guys remember Crane? Or Seneca Crane. Seneca Crane. He was the head so, game maker in Katniss's day. Yes. So, um, anyway, Arachne, Arachne? Arachne was her name, yeah. I read the book. So some of these names, I'm like, is this how you say I, it? I read parts of it in paperback. And other, yeah. I, I probably listened, listened to most to of it because yeah. I had to go back to work. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so um, she comes to feed her tribute, and she taunts her tribute with the food, and the tribute slips a knife that Arachne brought um into her hand and slits arachne's throat yeah and then you're back to because the the tributes well not the tributes the the mentors were starting to warm up to the tributes especially sejanus and coriolanus Mm -hmm. they were they were starting to almost become friends well i mean sejanus was he was trying really hard to get marcus to like him Mm -hmm. but lucy and coriolanus were forming this relationship and mm-hmm. um, Coriolanus starts almost empathizing with um, the people from the districts, the tributes especially. And, and then this happens. he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't. He doesn't want to. Like, he is capital through and through. He doesn't want to humanize um, them especially. Exactly. But then this happens, and um, you immediately, because there's people there at the zoo. They're like, spectators. They're, yeah, they're there's watching spectators it. there. That's and why Arachne was taunting her tribute, because yeah. it was getting a rise out of, the, out of the crowd. There was cameras. There was a crowd. And so... You, um, you immediately see the the disparity between the districts and the capital again, mm-hmm. and um, and all the capital citizens are terrified again of the districts as they were during the war, mm-hmm. and um, and so that that was an important part. It was it was pretty shocking too, like the mm-hmm. way it was written, because you see her slip the knife into her hand, and I thought. Oh, she's gonna stab Arachne, and Arachne's gonna have to go to the hospital. And then no, she, she goes slits her throat, straight, literally like, for the jugular. That that was like whoa. And then I was like, oh yeah, this is Suzanne Collins, and this is the Hunger Games. This is gonna okay. be vicious. 
Um, going back to the relationship that Coriolanus was building with Lucy Gray, um, again, showing the, the mirror image that Sejanus projects, mm-hmm. um, he couldn't get Marcus, his, his tribute, to even mm-hmm. look at him. And you know, Marcus so he, went as far as, like, I'm not taking any... Like, he didn't even talk to him, but he would not take any food from Sejanus. Yeah, he wouldn't take any help. Like, it was impossible to build up a bond. And Marcus was physically the strongest of the tributes. Mm-hmm. So, like, Sejanus had effectively been given the best one, and, yep. he, and he couldn't do anything with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, that, that, uh, that scene with Arachne's tribute slitting her throat in front of everybody... Um, a couple of the tributes had also died kind of of starvation or, or exposure at this yeah. point. So, you know, you're supposed to have 24 and the number's whittling down. Mm-hmm. So then later they go on a tour. Oh, and Arachne's tribute, of course, is is, is gunned down is, by the peacekeepers. Yeah, executed yeah. for that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so all this is going on and it's, it's, uh, it's all playing into Snow's hand because, you know, the wheels in his brain are turning and he's seeing, okay... What happened? What was people's reaction to it? What do I do with that information? Mm-hmm. How do I how do I leverage that into control? Mm-hmm. How do I make that work for me? How do I make snow land on top? Yeah, that's the the saying that he and Tigris have: snow lands on top, mm-hmm. snow falls on top, whatever it was. Yeah. Snow lands, on, lands top. on top. Um. So then we get to the part where they go on a tour of the arena prior to the games, and the uh, the mentors get to go with their tributes. And this is where we find out that uh, the rebellion, despite being crushed, mm-hmm. supposedly, and the districts being subjugated. Yeah, I mean, the war is done. It's been done the, for the, 10 years. The war is done, but somebody didn't tell the rebels that, mm-hmm. much like the uh, Confederate flag rebels of today that are still flying their flag and the war, <laughs> the war never ended. <laughs> but they've, uh, they've rigged some bombs up in the arena. Mm-hmm. They knew that... There were going to be capital folks and tributes going around that day. And uh, I don't know if they were like trying to go so far as to blow the entire arena up, but they had a lot of bombs go off everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we find out that the arena, which really was just like a sports stadium, a football stadium or something, but the uh, the ground level of seats were were kind of closed off. And so you pretty much only had the field and whatever dirt and obstacles they put down there. Yeah. Um, a bunch of bombs go off. They blow open the the tunnels and the corridors and stuff that lead to, you know, the the gangways and the promenades and whatnot. They effectively expand the map for the arena. Mm-hmm. But a number not of not on purpose. They, they were trying to kill. They were yeah, the, the mentors and maybe even the tributes. I don't know. Yeah, trying to trying to stop the games. Yeah. Um, and the, and the capital kind of twists that to their advantage. They're like, oh, look what the rebels did. Well, it makes the games more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Gaius Green was the the mentor that got his legs blown off, yep. and he would later die mm-hmm. from that. And uh, you know, a, a couple of other people got injured. The, uh, the twins, yeah, that Coriolanus actually liked. They yeah. were one of the few that he actually liked. Um, Corio was the was she the girl that Doctor Gall experimented on? Oh no, the snake bitter, and she Cor- started. To- Corio was Coriolanus's nickname. Clemencia. Right, it was another C name. Sorry, no, you're right. Clemencia. Clemencia. She uh, she got she got bit by one of Doctor Gall's mutts. Mm-hmm. This is another thing that's relevant because we we learn about you know the early versions of of the mutts, the mutated animals that mm-hmm. were much more prominent in the trilogy later on. Doctor Gall, aside from having her hand in the early days of the games, 
also had her early her hand in the early uh, versions of the mutts. She was talking about like yeah, she was an actual doctor. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she was she was mutating snakes to uh, to kind of home in on people with their olfactory senses, and mm-hmm. she gave them mutant venom. Anyway, Clemencia got bit. She started like turning into a snake. Yeah, uh, scales all over. Yeah, like it, it was it was pretty gnarly. Like this this chick, Doctor Gall, is demented. Well, and it was interesting to see because. Um, I don't think Snow would have been who he was without Dr. Gall mm-hmm. because no, she was absolutely. the one, she was the one that, that thought like people's, uh, base level is violence. Mm-hmm. The people are violent and they are evil and we're just showing that in the Hunger Games. Like, mm-hmm. and Coriolanus, he kind of struggles with that a little bit, I think. But then, because of situations that Dr. Gall creates, um, he, he starts to take that as his own philosophy. Yeah. And so that's a huge... Um, She's a massive she, influence yeah. on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, as much as he's, he's power-hungry and, you know, again, cunning and charming and all that, he's still malleable and he's, he's choosing the influences that he allows to, to shape him. And, yeah. You know, maybe you know, absent her presence, he wouldn't have have taken on her kinds of philosophies. But mm-hmm. it was, you know, call it a means to an end. He he wanted power. He knew that she was a stepping stone to that. And so, if he had to adopt her methods and adopt her underlying philosophies, then he would do that because power was his northern star. Mm-hmm. You know, getting getting back on top. Snow falls on top. So uh, we'll we'll wrap up part one here, the mentors, with uh, the kind of the closing lines of this one, where um, Lucy Gray, who from their very first meeting has, in her way, challenged him, and uh, you know been kind of a, a puzzle. There's there's been a bit of a back and forth. Like we said, they did start to develop a relationship, but she mm-hmm. she kind of closes part one by telling him like, "You need to think that I can actually do this." Well, and she she saves his life after the bombings. Yeah. Um, she had the opportunity to run and escape, and instead she chose to save Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. And that's also a big influence in the book. Yeah, we're, we're seeing the, the nascent stages of, of some two-way affection between them because mm-hmm. you know, he, he does have affection toward her to the extent that it can help him. Mm-hmm. But you get glimpses of him, you know, seeing her as a person. Yeah. Seeing her not just as an instrument for himself. And he, he does admit that he's like, I'm starting to feel things for this girl. You know, Mm -hmm. she's, she's a real person and, and she's got, you know, she's got attributes that I can value beyond what they can gain for me power wise. Yeah. So he's, he's not fully formed as a tyrant yet. He's, he's got his, his chosen path, but he, with her, he starts to see another way. Yep. He starts to value other things, even though he doesn't want to, but he's, he starts to, he, he has to, what am I trying to say? He gets to choose ultimately in this book between power and love. And this is where we start to see that Those happen. Choices, yep. And, and she's got a bit of a power streak in her, not that she wants power over anybody else, but she wants power under the preservation of her own life. And she's got, she's got fire. She's got some spunk. And that's when she tells him, she's like, you you need to think that I can do this. I, mm-hmm. I need you to, you know, she, she can kind of tell that he cares about her, but she knows what he's about. Yeah. And, and well, she wants to be valued higher than that. Yeah. And her big theme throughout the book is freedom. Mm-hmm. And she keeps bringing it up in different ways to Coriolanus. 
and kind of helping him realize that he is not as free as he thinks. Mm-hmm. He's he's a cog in a system, mm-hmm. and his his efficacy and his value in that system kind of depends on how much he does what everybody else tells him. Yeah. And for somebody who wants power, that's an anathema. Yeah. Like no, I I want to be the one you know turning the key. I don't want to be a piston down in in the engine housing as it were all right so we're a little bit long on on this segment but this is going to be a mega episode we're going to uh take a break here and we'll regroup and come back for part two the prize okay welcome back listeners we are here to discuss part two of the ballad of songbirds and snakes Uh, the reason why i'm kind of introducing us again is because we stopped recording last night when the first part of this episode went much longer than we intended, <laughs> but we've since talked about part two, the prize, and we're going to jump right in. So uh, one thing that Shara mentioned that kind of distinguishes this game from later versions of the games, obviously, is that, you know, aside from the training and the feeding of the tributes, uh, you know, which comes later in this one, they didn't even care if the full 24 of them made it into the arena. Yeah. they. I mean, they went into the arena with... 14 um the other 10 had died before the game started of of various causes mm-hmm. some of them you know there was uh, brandy who was the girl that had killed arachne and mm-hmm. she got shot by the peacekeepers and and even out of the 14 um one of them was effectively neutralized when the game started marcus Remember? Yes. Because after the bombing, he had kind of disappeared into a crack in the in the arena and made it down into the sewers, into yeah, the he underground. Escaped. And this is one of those things that's another kind of callback to Mockingjay because a significant portion of Mockingjay was the Star Squad moving through the underground, moving through the sewers where mm-hmm. where Avoxes were relegated. Who was it? Was Pollux who'd been underground for a number of years? I think one so. One of the one of the twins, one yeah. of the brothers. So. Uh, the peacekeepers eventually cornered him and snuffed him out, and they beat the crap out of him. Marcus. Out of Marcus, yeah. not Pollux. <laughs> out of out of Marcus. And when the game started, he was kind of trussed up under under this big uh, rack. They put two poles and a, and a beam across the top, and then they chained his wrist to that. And yeah, so they, they strung him up there. Yeah. The uh, the kid who was supposed to be the the Cato of the Tenth Hunger Games, he was supposed to be the big muscle kid. Yeah. Um, was was beaten and chained up and didn't have a chance to defend himself. So, right away when the game started, what what was another thing that was different about the start of the tenth games versus the seventy fourth? Well, I mean, there wasn't really a bloodbath. I mean, they that's yeah, kind of the hallmark of the Hunger Games is that they have that big bloodbath at the beginning, and then whatever tributes are left kind of scatter. Um, but uh, I mean, we kind of talked about this before, but. The previous nine games, it was just a bloodbath, and then it sounded like it was done, like it was over in a few hours. Yeah, it wasn't even a full 24 hours, but again, with the Rebels bombing the arena and opening up, you know, tunnels and hallways and stuff, a bunch of them just turned and ran for it, Mm -hmm. including Lucy Gray. Yeah. But there was one of the girls, her name started with an L, I don't remember, but she took an axe and a knife, and was she from... Lamina? Lamina, I think. She was from District 7. She was from Lumber. Yeah. Cause she was good at climbing she climbed one of the poles and uh got up over marcus and she she said something to him like she communicated with him yeah and ended up you know i, I got the impression that he kind of gave his consent mm-hmm. to kill him mm-hmm. and so she put him out and she got the first 
real kill of the official games. Yeah, that's the impression you get. But um, I mean, also in these Hunger Games, they like they have the mics around the outside of the stadium, mm-hmm. not the like, not the stadium, like the the outside ring of the arena. Mm-hmm. So if they're if the tributes were in the center, then nobody could hear what they were saying. Which again is something that they improved on later because I mean they had. They had hidden cameras and microphones all over the later mm-hmm. arenas. Like Katniss and Peter were in a cave, and the mics were picking everything up, and it yeah. was it was all part of the show. Um, let's talk about Marcus's death and the aftermath of that. So we're we're seeing the games through the eyes of Coriolanus, mm-hmm. who's in. Well, they didn't call it the green room. It was kind of it was a, a behind the scenes room where the, where the mentors all sat watching their tributes and sending in donations and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, and they had cameras on them. and Yeah. Um, and if their tribute died, then they would get interviewed. A quick exit know. interview before they had to leave the, the, the green room. We'll just yeah. call it that. I, I there was a written It was like a it. stage, wasn't it? And, yeah. And then the... Because it was at the academy. They were up on a stage and the, the audience was the rest of the academy. Yeah, maybe that right. was it. Like I, I kind of had a different mental picture of it, but oh. you know, the, the the process was what was important, right. and uh, you know, they'd be there for you know, figure ten, twelve hours a day at mm-hmm. least, and then the mentors would go home at night because pretty much all the tributes would go hide and sleep. There wasn't a whole lot of activity yeah. overnight. Well, and, and they couldn't see a whole lot anyway on the cameras because mm-hmm. it was dark and they didn't have okay, the I, tech in place to. Something to improve on. Yep. Well, we had an interesting development on the day that Marcus died since Marcus was Sejanus's tribute. Mm-hmm. Sejanus got his quick exit interview and he left. And then Coriolanus goes home later that night. And Ma Plinth is at the, uh, the snow house, the snow mm-hmm. apartment. And she's like, oh my goodness gracious, Coriolanus, my boy Sejanus didn't come home tonight. Do you know where he went? Mm-hmm. And there's this cinematic dramatic moment that just as Coriolanus is saying oh I'm sure he'll be home anytime <laughs> they're watching TV and holy crap Sejanus entered the arena yep. in the Hunger Games to go kind of do a, a last rites thing for Marcus yep. an old District 2 thing and what was Coriolanus's impression of of the value of those last rites do you remember? Oh he thought it was completely ridiculous yeah, yeah there was these scattered breadcrumbs so yeah. that uh so that the deceased would have something to eat on their way to go wherever they were going. Oh, his thought of like, oh great, we don't have anything to eat, but here's this dead person, so we're going to waste some bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, again, it's such a stark contrast because Sejanus was compassionate and he had some kind of philosophy that extended beyond the mortal world. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that religion exists in the world of the hunger games yeah probably not uh, i wouldn't i don't even think that they had like blasphemous exclamations in the trilogy later on like it was mm. it was such so thoroughly stomped out mm-hmm. and, and yet there were people you know these backwards people from the districts these blue collar folks that that held on to certain rights and things that they did and and uh, because they they valued life so tremendously that they wouldn't give up on it that easily whereas coriolanus was like this is ridiculous well, I think for him, it wasn't necessarily the last rites. It was the fact that they were using bread. Like, he knew that the people in the districts were starving, and yet they were using bread on somebody that was dead and, and wouldn't be eating it. Yeah. I think that was that was where the stupidity came in for him. And 
And I don't think Sejanus would have seen that because his family is so wealthy that he never wanted for anything. Mm-hmm. So uh, Coriolanus gets a phone call. Yeah. From uh, Dean High as a Kite Bottom. <laughs> And uh, he gets an assignment. He gets some homework from the dean that hates him and doesn't really care if he dies. Well, and it's from Dr. Gall. Um, Dean Highbottom was just the one to deliver the He delivered the call, but Gall had this ridiculously awesome idea because, again, she's trying to harden the instrument that is Coriolanus Snow into something that she can manipulate because she sees that dark potential in him. Yep, so... They said that we're going to put a bulletproof vest on you, and uh, you're going to... Send you into the games. You're going into the games to get Sejanus out of there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's dramatic. It's I, I don't want to recount it in detail because I, I want you to kind of experience the tension of the moment when you read it. Well, and hopefully you've already read the book because mm-hmm. we've done a whole bunch of spoilers. No, no, no. I, I hope that I'm spoiling this for people <laughs> at this point. We're in part two. They need to be reading it now. Uh, but he goes in and he gets Sejanus out, and like on the way out... Like the the tributes wake up and they're chasing him with weapons and mm-hmm. like it's it's scary like he I think that's important because again like it shows his ruthlessness and his absolute soullessness that even though he knows what it's like in the arena he has a small taste of that mm-hmm. he he has boots on the ground experience of being chased by bloodthirsty district kids as he flees for his life and his takeaway is. We can make this even worse. <laughs> well, and um, remember, I mean, he was he was pretty upset about killing that one kid, and then, um, but then Doctor Gall, you know, calls him back in afterwards, and um, shifts Coriolanus's perspective on that mm-hmm. from, oh, I I murdered this kid to, no, this is, and that's where she brings in, no, like the everyone's. Uh, we're still at war base level yeah and everyone's base level is is violence like people are at the core violent and evil Mm -hmm. and um and so that's i think that was the turning point for coriolanus to shifting to dr gall's perspective yeah i mean civilization we're seeing this right now real time as we're recording this you know the riots are going on in you know 30 cities across the country and we're Mm -hmm. seeing that Civilization, this thing that we've lived with our entire lives, is is really tenuous. Mm-hmm. It really it hangs by a thread, and it it doesn't take much more than a nudge to kind of revert a lot of people back to that that wild animal state. Mm-hmm. It removes that thing that separates us from the animal kingdom, as it were. And if that's the base state, then okay, you can either be a prepper who's got his own castle and his own arsenal and always be prepared, or you can ingratiate yourself into the power structure and you know as is the theme with Coriolanus Snow mm-hmm. find ways to control it yeah to control other people and to use that through through fear and through power and through through ferocity through violence um you know and and he he might not have come to a point where he valued that without that first-hand experience in the games you know, he was he was made into a contender in the games in the 76th Hunger Games in Mockingjay right but we see now that he he'd already had a small taste of that. Mm-hmm. So they get Sejanus out of there, and uh, that earns Coriolanus some brownie points. And then most of what I remember from you know the rest of part two of this book is is kind of centered on 
you know, the way that the tributes kill each other, the way that the mm-hmm. list narrows down. But we learn that Dr. Gall wants to spice up the game with some mutts. Yes. What were the first mutts that we saw in the Hunger Games in the first book? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember. They were the the bipedal canine creatures that were like like the wolves that were made of DNA of the other yes. tributes. Oh, yeah. And, like, it came at the end. I just remember they were super creepy. Yeah. I don't remember what they were. Yeah. And then in the second one, it was the monkeys. Mm-hmm. And in the third one, it was those underground lizard creatures oh that could gosh. talk. Those were awful. Yeah. Um, again, we're, we're seeing much earlier iterations of the tech in this book. And Dr. Gall is uh, bi- biologically, genetically engineering a, an army of attack snakes. Yeah. And you kind of talked about that in the first part. Yeah. Because Clement, Clementia gets bitten by him. Yeah, well, she's she's refined the process, and Coriolanus finds out that um, you can you can condition the snakes not to attack somebody if you yeah. give them a certain smell. Yep. And what does he do, babe? Um, so he he's in the lab. He's in there to get his stitches looked at. From, from the cut that he um, got. From the cut that he got when he was in the arena. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as he's leaving, um, they're wheeling out this tank of snakes. And he, from the conversation he overhears, he realizes that these snakes are going into the arena. and that To spice things up. <laughs> well, and that probably all the tributes are going to be killed, mm-hmm. including Lucy. And so... He's trying to think of what a, he can do. He's got stirrings for Lucy. <laughs> well, and I think it's equal parts feelings for her, and also like he really needs this win. Yeah. And um, probably more so the win, but mm-hmm. um, he he realizes that he's got a handkerchief that Lucy had used. Um, she had been crying, and he had handed her a handkerchief. She handed it back, and he had put it in his backpack, and he. You realize, like, I've got this handkerchief with her scent on it. And he sneakily drops it in the tank. So all the snakes will get the scent, mm-hmm. and they won't attack him, and they won't attack her. Not that he's in any danger, yeah, but he, he's not in danger. but it's more important that, yeah, he, he kind of stealthily did that. And, um, you know, we see some of the other tributes find creative ways to kill each other. The kids from the tech district manipulate a couple of drones, mm-hmm. and they get one of the, some of the delivery drones that are sending... Um, you know, bread and water to the tributes, get them to attack one of the kids and kill him. Um, we see, oh, we also see Lucy use the compact. Yes. She uh, she did it twice. Uh, well, um, first, I thought this was an interesting part. When um, her counterpart, the boy from 12. Jessup. When he gets rabies, mm-hmm. or he already had rabies, but when he goes crazy with it. Somebody sends in water to scare him and yeah, panic his, him. Yeah, his mentor yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, was that one Lysistrata? Was she the mentor? Yeah. She was the other mentor? So uh, as all these kids are descending on Lucy Gray and Jessup, and she realizes Jessup is dead, she drops one of her water bottles because she'd been getting supplies from Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. And one of the other kids who's going crazy with thirst drinks the last of the water in there and immediately dies. Yeah. And... Now the question's like, wait a minute, how, how did that happen? What's going on here? Why did this kid suddenly die? And because well, no, nobody knows that Lucy Gray has this poison, has right. the rat poison. We as the audience know. Yeah. We and Coriolanus knows. 
But he's like, um, okay, good. I, I was hoping she would do that, but mm-hmm. now we've just got to be careful and not overplay that. Yeah, and then um, Reaper was, uh, I mean, he was pretty smart about the way that he was playing. I mean, he basically wasn't even playing. He was the one that was, like, lining up the bodies yeah, as they were dying. Yeah, he was from and, District 11. That was the agricultural district. He mm-hmm. was kind of like thresh in this one mainly yes. mainly in terms of his his wit and his strength uh-huh. not necessarily in you know that he was amenable to the kids from 12 or anything right. he was he was playing it smart he wasn't like vicious or violent he just like everybody else he wanted to survive mm-hmm. and uh, he had cut down that flag of pan am and he was like kind of wearing it as a as a yes. cape like he yeah. he'd learned a little bit about the spectacle too yeah so um, uh well and then lucy gets him by poisoning the uh the puddle that he'd been drinking out of, mm-hmm. I, which was really smart of her, because at first I didn't even realize that she had done it, because she, she was like swishing around water in a water bottle mm-hmm. from the puddle and then poured it back in, and it was like, oh, like what, what's she doing? And then you realize, oh, yeah. she, she was poisoning his puddle, and so he had he had been injured in a fight or something, but he took a drink and then the poison got him and he crawled onto the pile of dead tributes because he'd been kind of stacking the bodies. Mm-hmm. He crawled on the pile and, and died. Laying and, them out. Yeah. They were all laid out. He crawled over there and he died and uh, you know, Lucy Gray, again, going cinematic for this, she she takes the, the flag of Pan Am that he was wearing and kind of drapes it over the bodies of tributes and mm-hmm. she's the winner. And this is where part two comes to a close with, uh, you know, everybody clapping Coriolanus in the back, your tribute one against all odds, blah, blah, blah. But he gets pulled into Dean Highbottom's room and Dean Highbottom has a couple of items on his desk. He's got the compact that Lucy Gray had, which they now know contained rat poison. And they're not sure how that happened. Mm-hmm. And they also have the handkerchief from the snake tank. And this is where one of one of like this just the surprise sideways twists of this book came in it's like something that i never expected to happen mm-hmm. um we'll we'll discuss it in the, the final segment of of this episode because <laughs> holy cow hold on to your butts you are you guys already know nevertheless all right we're gonna wrap up with part three the peacekeeper raise your hand if you saw this coming at all oh not at all yeah, he, not even close. He was expecting to to get the prize, and instead he's got to go basically enlist in the army, and his life is over. Mm-hmm. His his cousin and his grandmother have to put the apartment up for sale, and and you know, everything that he's been working hard to prevent and seems to have succeeded at blows up in his face. Yeah, and he's forced to go enlist mm-hmm. because High Bottom says, "Look, you either do this, and I get rid of you, or I tell everybody that you cheated, and you're done either way." Yeah. So. And so he tries to preserve his family name mm-hmm. and leaves. Tries to um, you know, play it off as patriotism. Uh, yes. I need to go, you know, serve Pan Am. Yeah, and the the interesting thing, I think, about this story, because you know where President Snow ends up, mm-hmm. but you don't know how he gets there. And so, like, I love that she could still do a big twist like this, um, even though you know where he's going to end up. Yeah, you know the what and the where, Mm -hmm. so the question for the next 250-some-odd pages of the book is how. Yeah. How on earth does he come back from this? Yeah. What what happens that gets him back to the capital Mm -hmm. and into the political system and ultimately on top? Mm -hmm. So he he requests to be sent to District 12. Ah. 
obviously to see Lucy to, Gray to again. see Lucy Gray because he he's mm-hmm. gone from stirrings to full on feelings for her. <laughs> She's uh, the only good thing left in his life. Yep. And uh, he goes through the the hard physical training and and all that stuff. He gets sent to uh, sent to the base. And man, there's a lot that goes on in this final third of the story that um, you know, I don't want to sit there and recount every single detail of it, but. Uh, he's trying to find Lucy Gray in mm-hmm. District 12. And well, and, I mean, one of the big things that happens is that, I mean, he's about ready to give up and possibly end his life, right? You remember yeah. that? Mm-hmm. And then Sejanus shows up. Yeah. And Coriolanus, I mean, everybody thinks that they're friends, but Coriolanus does not like him. No, but he's, um, but he's, but so, he's so happy to he's see him. so happy to see Sejanus. And we start to see, like, a real foundational change in Coriolanus now mm-hmm. it is a change that's that's forced by his circumstances and the fact that he doesn't have any other options mm-hmm. which is uh, very important for understanding what he does at the end of the book mm-hmm. you know, he's he only becomes good when he has no other choice yeah when it's the only thing that can bring him joy and so Sejanus also enlists with the peacekeepers also goes to 12 and holy cow I've, I've, I've got this guy and he he's my friend now mm-hmm. okay here's this little piece of home um, Coriolanus was also writing to Ma Plinth, to yep. Sejanus' mother, and so she's sending him big Mormon mission mommy care packages. <laughs> oh my gosh, it totally <laughs> It totally is. was, wasn't it? Like <laughs> homemade treats and pies and stuff. And That's what I didn't even think about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so he's, he's getting these care packages, he's getting goodies from home, and he's doling them out to the other guys in the bunker, and he's he's earning clout with them, and then... He, uh, he crosses paths with Lucy Gray. How does he meet mm-hmm. her again? Um, she is, she and her little family, because, I mean, they call each other family, uh, are singing at the Hob. The Hob! Yeah, the Hob. District 12? The Hob? All these places are there? Mm-hmm. And then uh, he's not able to meet her on that first night because uh, her ex-boyfriend shows up. Uh, all, a big scene. And, and, and we realize that one of the songs that Lucy Gray sang earlier in the book is about this ex-boyfriend that cheated on her. Mm-hmm. With? Mayfair. With the mayor's daughter. Which is why Lucy put a snake <laughs> down her dress. Well, that and the which, fact which that is why the, the mayor... Which is why the mayor tried to kill her off anyway. Yeah. You know, it's, we, we're, we're seeing Coriolanus kind of insert himself in this this feud that predates when he even knew Lucy Gray and you know he gets to be a, a part of that whole scene so uh, a fight breaks out they've got to leave um, and he ends up on their day off hiking all the way out to the seam mm-hmm. and this is a, again where I'm just like the, the way that his life almost accidentally parallels Katniss's yeah. is, is just a really good uh, what the heck do we call it? It's not the Yanis effect, but I think it's called like the, the shadow factor or something. When you have a, a protagonist and an antagonist that have walked the same path but gone in different directions. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the same thing that Marvel does where they overplay it where you have two characters with the same power that fight each other all the time <laughs> because they're already ideologically opposed. But um, Coriolanus Snow goes to Katniss Everdeen's meadow. Yep. He was there decades before her parents were even born. Yep, the meadow and, um, and the, the lake. lake. Yeah. Yeah, we also see, like, uh, and not just the lake, but the the one lake house that's there, mm-hmm. where Katniss would later, you know, stow some supplies. 
in Catching Fire when she runs into Bonnie and Twill in the forest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're they're on the run and they're injured and they've got oversized clothes and stuff. And she sets them up inside that house. Mm-hmm. Like, like it, it felt like going back physically to a place, reading about it like this yeah. and seeing, like, holy crap, it's, it's almost creepy the way that President Snow had his fingerprints on all these places that were that were important to Katniss, that were... Yeah, before she was... I mean... But yeah, yeah. She, she was a twinkle in somebody's distant eye, mm-hmm. and, and he was there. And these places had a similar influence on him that they did on her, but now I'm wondering, you know, Katniss was a result of her environment. Katniss didn't... She only got to choose very little about what she ended up being. Mm-hmm. You know, she was she was a result of her circumstances. Snow had choices, so now I'm wondering, what does it say about Katniss if she had choices like Snow? Would she have ended up different, or how much of her character was nurture versus nature? That is a very interesting topic of conversation. Um, well, and we know that I she loves that, her sister. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of Katniss's motivation was the fact that she loved Prim so much and wanted to protect her, mm-hmm. and. Um, Coriolanus had something similar with Tigress. He, he cared for her. He did, but he was not the protector in that circumstance. She was. She was older, and she was the protector. And we find that out in the first two thirds of the book. You know, one of the unasked questions is, you know, what is what is Tigress out doing to provide for the family? Mm-hmm. And and the. Uh, the unspoken word in there is, is she prostituting herself? Uh-huh. Is she doing this for money to, to earn for people? And he almost asks her that once outright. And well, and not as her job, like to get these extra little things that she brings home for Coriolanus. To, yeah, to help him as a uh-huh. mentor. Uh, you know, where did she get the potatoes to make the starch, to starch his shirt, you yeah. know, before he goes to the mentorship? You know, mm-hmm. all these things. So, you know, he, maybe he was less like Katniss in that sense and more like Prim. Maybe, maybe maybe Prim would have destroyed all of Pan Am. <laughs> In a way, she did, if you think about it. <laughs> but I'm getting I'm getting my, ahead of myself. So, on his days off, Coriolanus is always making the long walk through those hot summer afternoons to the seam to mm-hmm. spend time with his girl Lucy Gray. Yeah. And then he finds out that. Uh, some of the uh, the ex boyfriend and peripheral figures in Lucy Gray's life are involved in. In the rebellion. The big, yeah. dirty R word. But things get even more complicated because Sejanus starts showing sympathies toward the rebellion. Yeah. And... I mean, which makes sense. That's totally his character throughout the book. He's he's capital rich, but he's ideologically district. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he would, of course, sympathize with these people. And Coriolanus starts to find evidence that, that uh, Sejanus is kind of aiding the rebellion and giving them information about the peacekeepers and stuff and mm-hmm. well and not not to like plan an attack or anything like that like they're planning to to break to jailbreak somebody yeah somebody out and then um and this was something i don't know that they ever mentioned in the original original series or i just don't remember the fact that um they believe that there's nobody living up north Mm -hmm. that they can go up there and there's nobody up there they refer to uh to pan am as the known world and so Mm -hmm. you know canada is what just a wasteland is is everywhere on planet earth you know know. technologically knocked back the way that north america was so nobody's crossing oceans anymore 
Mm-hmm. You know, they, there's this, yeah, it's this widespread belief that if we just go far enough, enough north, we can escape Pan Am and we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Sejanus doesn't want to take down the capital. He wants to escape it. He uh-huh. wants to escape the country. And uh, Coriolanus is able to, through some trickery with the Jabber Jays, record Sejanus, you know, confessing to some treasonous things that he does. Mm-hmm. And he ends up sending that recording back to the Capitol. They find it. They bring Sejanus and they execute him for treason. Now, this is the second hanging that we see in District 12. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Arlo. All right. We don't really know much about him, just that he set a bomb in the mine and that it killed. I wasn't clear on whether it was three peacekeepers or three people. The The point is that it, it killed people and he... Well, the, the number three is important, though, because that's part of the Hanging Tree song. It's part of the Hanging Tree song, and that's he, he was the original subject of that song. Yep. And, again, like we're seeing ways that Coriolanus's life intertwined with Katniss's way ahead of time. Mm-hmm. He was there for the case that inspired the, the song The Hanging Tree. Yeah. Lucy Gray wrote that song. Yeah. And she performed it one time before the head peacekeeper was like, yeah, we're going to ban this. It's too yeah. rebellious. Well, and um, uh, I'm skipping forward a little bit. It's okay. We can but, jump around a little bit. Um, I mean, focusing on the Hanging Tree song, when you get to the end of the book and um, you realize that Lucy Gray found or understood that Coriolanus killed Sejanus, basically, mm-hmm. like he turned him in. Um and then Coriolanus has the thought, like, oh, that Hanging Tree song was about me and Sejanus. Like, mm-hmm. she wants me to hang alongside Sejanus because I turned him in. And yeah. um, and that that was a, like, oh, like, mind blown. Like, the Hanging Tree song is about snow? Yeah. What? Like just just la- layers and layers to this. So... Um, in conf- confronting the other rebels, um, Snow ends up killing, what was that turd's name? The ex-boyfriend. He ends up blowing mm-hmm. him away. And then Spruce ends up killing Mayfair. Mm-hmm. And then Spruce... No. Snow no. kills Mayfair. Snow kills Mayfair and Spruce yeah. kills the boyfriend. Yeah. That's what it was. Spruce was one of the, he was one of the rebels, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he had that seam look about him. He had the gray eyes. Yeah. You know, he might have been, you know, distantly related to Katniss and Gale. And uh, you know, so they're they're involved in a in a cover up and all that stuff. And then Sejanus gets busted and he gets hung. And um, things come to a head not just with Sejanus's relationship to Lucy Gray, but also uh, so you know the walls start closing in on Coriolanus because he's afraid that he's going to get busted for. Something that he did. He's yeah, I mean, he killed the mayor's daughter. He, he He's afraid that, that the walls are closing in on that because the rifle that he used is unaccounted for. Yeah, and, and the, it's got his DNA on it. And so he, he figures it's just a matter of time before that shows up because mm-hmm. it was with a bundle of weapons that the rebels had. Mm-hmm. Spruce had hidden it somewhere. So Coriolanus figures, okay, this is going to turn up. I'm going to get pegged. I need to get the heck out of here. I know that Lucy Gray wants to. So, again, he's... He's forced to do what would, for anybody else, be the right thing to do. Yeah. And he even, like, you know, in his kind of dense 18-year-old, thick-headed teenager way, 
says as much to Lucy Gray. She's like, oh, I'm like, you know, she's excited to see him. Oh, are you ready to go? And he's like, yeah, I pretty much have no choice. Let's do this. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and then uh, while, they're, while they're getting ready to make their, their final escape, he lets slip that psychologically, you know, he goes, I, I killed three people this summer. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she knows two of them. She knows who two of them are. Yeah. And and she, she goes, wait, who was the third? And she can tell that he's lying when yeah. he when he stumbles for an answer. Yeah. He he's like, oh, I mean, like the old me. The old me died this summer. And she's like, oh, okay. And then she doesn't say anything else mm-hmm. after that. And Lucy Gray is not one who shuts up. Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about this, this also comes on the tail end of her doing that performance for the head peacekeeper in District Twelve. Or they did that song yeah, the, that before. Was he a general or something? Yeah, he was he was a general and he well, she wrote a song that he knew was about him, that, that Snow knew was about him. And it wasn't an I love you song, it was an I trust you song. Yes. She finally comes to trust him and he's like, Wow, that's really valuable and then the very next day he lies to her about something huge. Uh-huh. And and so she she's probably feeling like, crap, I was completely mistaken to trust him. Uh-huh. And so they go to the lake. They go to the lake house. And yeah, it's, it's raining, like pouring. Yeah, so they go in there for some shelter to build a fire to, you know, to get some to get dry before they head north. And lo and behold, what do they find? The rebel weapons. The bag of weapons. The, yep. And all of a sudden, Snow has options. Yep. And Lucy is not stupid. She puts those options together, and she's like. I'm going to go down to the lake for some Katniss. I'm going to drudge up some Katniss for us. I'll be right back. She gets herself the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. Well, and um forgot to mention that, I mean, Coriolanus had to give up. He'd just been offered a, like, huge promotion. He was going to go to... Oh, he took the officer's test. And yeah. he got, like, the frigging highest score ever. Yeah, so and... he was, he was going to be, like you know, pipeline up to the top kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, they, they were going to fast track him to an academy mm-hmm. in District 2. He's like, you did so well, they want to they want to make sure that you're, like, with the higher-ups, higher-ups. Because, yeah, he was almost, like, university trained. He had that capital pedigree. And they're like, yeah, you're too smart to be one of us. Go be a leader. But he had to, yeah. he had to give that up. He, mm-hmm. he could have gone back to the capital, but he thought that he was going to get, again, nailed for Mayfair's murder. And so that was the only reason he was going with Lucy Gray. So yeah. she puts all these things together. She runs and he starts to panic. He gets he gets bit by a snake while he's looking for her. Yeah. He thinks that he's hallucinating because of the venom. You find out later, no, it's it's these things can also be symptomatic of panic. You were just mm-hmm. freaking out. He never finds Lucy Gray. Yeah. And shoots at her. Shoots at and her. And thinks maybe he hit her, but he doesn't know for sure. And and it's this big question mark even to the end of the book. He goes, I don't know if she got away, I don't know if she's a ghost, whatever. And it, it echoes the song that she's named after. Yeah. Yeah. So just Oh, just heart-wrenching. So he, he goes back to the base, um, you know, after he gets rid of the weapons. He goes and drops those in the lake. Mm-hmm. And uh, he goes back to the base, and he's almost resigning himself to his fate. And uh, instead they tell him, you know, no, you're you're heading back to the capital. Well, they tell him he's going no, to District no. 2, and then he gets yeah, on the train. Yeah, he gets on the train. And he's... then he falls asleep on the train. Uh-huh. And, they tell him like no, Doctor Call or Doctor Gall called in specifically and said, "No, we want you back in the capital. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy your summer vacation?" Yeah. And so, uh, in the epilogue, as things wrap up, we see how he gets back in. That, uh, you know, oh, that was that was infuriating. Infuriating. <laughs> well, he he sits down with uh, 
I don't know what the guy's title. I can't remember his name. Plinth, uh, Mr. Plinth, um, Sejanus' dad. dad. And Sejanus' dad is, you know, he's he's tactical and mm -hmm. practical. He says, look, you... You don't have parents. You don't have parents. Now we I, don't have a son. I don't have an heir, so yeah. you know, maybe we can work something out. So yeah. Coriolanus gets what he always felt was his, which was the, the Plinth fortune. Mm -hmm. He takes Sejanus' place. He takes what Sejanus was never after or interested in. They buy back the uh, the apartment that the Snows had with the rooftop terrace that has the roses on it, so we know where that all comes from. And yeah. uh, at the very end, Coriolanus Snow makes his first signature kill. But he has a conversation with Highbottom. You... Yes. And this is where Highbottom reveals yep. to him. He goes, I, I drunkenly had this idea for the Hunger Games, and your dad stole it and made it real, and I hate it. Mm -hmm. And this should be done, but you know, here you are, you're snow, you fall on top or whatever. Well, snow knew that high bottom had an addiction to painkillers mm -hmm. and he knew that Sejanus had started to get addicted to those same painkillers and he'd taken Sejanus's painkillers and he put some of Lucy Gray's rat poison in them and then left him where he knew high bottom would be like, Oh, I'll take some painkillers. Well, he had dumped out all of Sejanus's stuff on high bottom's desk. Yeah. Um, I can't even remember. He, he did it in such a way that, you know, it, it couldn't have been traced back to snow. Everybody yeah. figured High Bottom finally just overdosed mm -hmm. on on morphling. Mm -hmm. I say painkillers; it's morphling. It's you know the the go to drug of the Hunger Games. So he he goes and makes the first kill that he'll make many many more times in his career to take out political opponents and threats and stuff because yeah, that was really the first one that was premeditated and made as a power move because. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. High bottoms out of the way. His main opponent within the academy, within the power structure, he's under Doctor Gall's wing. Mm -hmm. He's got the wealth. He's got the connections now. He's got everything that he set out to get in the very beginning, and it didn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. Like he, he could have been honest. He could have been better. He, he had. But then he wouldn't have been President he, Snow. <laughs> he wouldn't have been President Snow. So, um, in closing. I want to talk about, it's not anti-heroes, but it's mainly like stories where the villain is the main character. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're not cheering for the villain, you're just learning about them. Mm -hmm. um, this was kind of a hang-up for a lot of people with Infinity War because, oh, this is a tragedy, this is obviously just you know a, a first half of a two-part story. And yeah, it can seem that way because we've been cheering for the Avengers all this time. Yeah, But if you think about it, the main character of that story is Thanos. That's true. Yeah. And he he goes through his arc. He he you know sacrifices. He achieves his goal. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's a happy ending for him, even if it's miserable for everybody else. But he was the main character in Infinity War. I I never thought about that. Yeah, that you, way before. You're yeah. not supposed to like him. Yeah. You're not supposed to cheer for him, but you do understand him. Like you understand his vision. You understand that he's he's mad, but not in the you know Mad Hatter or Joker way where he's cackling and tearing his hair out. His his morality system is what makes him the Mad Titan. Mm -hmm. He's got all this physical strength and stuff, but you know the Avengers have near insurmountable physical strength, and they do good. Thanos has that, but you know, he's got this ethos that just allows him to sleep comfortably with killing half of everybody he comes across. Mm -hmm. You know that's that's his story. So even though you're not cheering for him or or necessarily trying to relate to him, you do understand his motivation. Yeah, he's not twisting his mustache and throwing damsels on train tracks. Mm -hmm. Because the plot demands it. Yeah. 
um, with Coriolanus, it's you know understanding that he was he was born to power, and he got to see both sides of the spectrum. And when he had a choice, he still grasped power because ultimately that's that's what he valued. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I could have love, but if I have power, what do I need love for? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's you hope that that's a choice that most people wouldn't make. You know, I say, of course I wouldn't make that, but I've never been tempted with that kind of power and wealth. Now, fortunately, I've got a morality structure that has me keeping an eternal perspective on things. And, you know, I know that most of what I build in this life isn't going to go with me into the next one. And, you know, that's a a driving force for, for my moral code. But obviously Snow didn't have that. And, you know, when you've got the the mortal perspective those are the conclusions that you come to what were some of your takeaways from this story hmm. i mean we've talked about like all of them right <laughs> i mean if you were to if you were to sum up say you say that you learned anything from it if you were to sum up anything that you learned that we haven't covered what would it be i don't i don't know about like learning anything it was just it was really cool to see where President Snow had come from. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the fact that she was able, that Suzanne Collins was able to put those twists and turns in the book and keep it interesting, even though you know where Snow was going to end up. Yeah. A lot of people talk about Breaking Bad the, uh, as a show about a guy who, you know, the main character is, is a bad guy or, yeah. you know, morally conflicted and all that. Um that's not a show that I was ever able to get into that or you know it just dealt with subject matter that was way too dark not that this stuff was necessarily a walk in the park but stories like this that are at their core a character examination are of value to the reader because of the values that they espouse Mm -hmm. did you ever read the old man in the sea long time ago okay so Plot-wise, all that happens in that book is an old man goes fishing, he catches a marlin, and he doesn't let go of it, no no matter what. Right. And I remember reading that story and, like, being moved and being, you know, oh, man, this is gripping, this is exciting, this is, you know, is he going to get back with this this huge catch, this, Mm -hmm. you know, this catch that nobody else has made of this massive size? And then the story ends, and by the time he gets back to port, his boat is shot and in tatters and it's pretty much just the skeleton of this swordfish or marlin or whatever that he'd caught Mm -hmm. there was no monetary or temporal value gained in it for him and uh, he hurt himself and wore himself out physically but I was talking to Jordan about it after the fact after I read it and was like "I, I, I really enjoyed that I was really entertained by it but I don't understand what the point of this story was I can't figure out how to express it and he said Something that still hangs with me to this day. He goes, it it affirms courage. And for somebody like me who's so used to reading plot-driven stories or character-driven stories that have an arc and follow a format and show you somebody progressing from one thing, beginning, middle, end, having a goal, solving it, reaching it, you know, this story has all of that, but not in the way that I was used to. Mm-hmm. And, and yet it resonated with me. And, and it's because... Yeah, the, the courage, the diligence, the endurance. Mm-hmm. Those are values that I would want to espouse. And I'm sitting there watching somebody else do it and saying, man, I wish I was like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I find value in stories like that because I want to emulate the good characteristics of 
of the main characters in them. I think with Ballad of Songbird and Snakes, sometimes stories are a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. You know, be, to be careful of the choices that you make because they lead to who you become yep. and what you do to others. Yeah, and and like you've mentioned before, with the way that it was written, you see that compare and contrast between Snow and Katniss. And the, I mean, they have way more similarities than you would have thought. Mm-hmm. And um, they walked at the same places. You uh-huh. know, they, they had the same kind of influences at, at different times and in different ways, but yeah. they, they. Some of the same motivations, even. They took the same path in, diff- in different directions. Mm-hmm. So, fascinating read, and I am. I'm very pleased at at how well it was put together and the fact that I was looking forward to this book for so long and I wasn't let down yes. like other authors that I shall so not name here. nice. Yay. Uh, just perfectly well done. So that will do it for this special, long, drawn-out bonus episode of the Brother Trucker Book Club podcast. Making up for all those episodes that you didn't do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm still going back on hiatus for another month and a half, but... <laughs> Big thanks to my wife for joining me in, in discussing all this stuff for the last two nights. And uh, I hope that uh, you readers have also enjoyed this book. And uh, if you've got anything that you wanted to, to bring up to weigh in on, shoot me a line at dreadpennies at gmail.com. And uh, I'll bring it up in the next episode's mailbag. Until then, you guys know the drill. Drive safe. See you out there. <laughs>